My name's Patricia King, and today I have an exciting message for you to hear. Stop! What are you thinking? We can't make it look like Patricia King is endorsing fighting. <clears throat> Hi, folks. Uh, Chris Rosebeer here. Just want to remind you, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you, your generous gifts, and your financial contributions to continue to bring this important radio outreach to you as well as to the world. And unfortunately, we don't have the the major cash resources that... Patricia King does, but we have you, our listener audience, to help uh, support us financially so that we can keep bringing this radio program to you into the world. If you don't already support Fighting for the Faith financially, you can do so by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you're signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. And there are perks to being a crew member. Just keep listening to the program to find out what the latest perk is. And, of course, if you would like to make a one-time contribution, you could do so by clicking on the Donate button. Or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. All right, on to the program. We loved making it. We hope you enjoyed listening to it. Here we go. It's time... For another edition of Fighting for the Faith, Wednesday, July 17th, 2013. Yes, we will be doing our standard light edition today. You know, it feels just like I'm no longer on vacation. <laughs> Oy, busy day though. for tuning in. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. My name is Chris Rosebro. I am your servant in Jesus Christ, and this is the program that dishes up a daily dose of biblical discernment, the goal of which, help you to think biblically, help you to think critically, help you compare what people are saying in the name of God to the Word of God. No shortage of crazy things being said out there. We take the time to open up our Bibles and compare what people are saying about God in context with what the Bible says. You're going to find that um, as you listen to Fighting for the Faith, the vast majority of, uh, of biblical Bible twisting in, uh, that's going on in the churches today clears up as soon as you do a little bit of context, context, context. Uh, when people are ripping verses out of context and then using them to, you know, basically hanging them like pearls on a string as they're telling you their own theological narrative, uh, it's pretty easy to spot that once you start to, um, well, learn how to look for it. But what's needed on the other end of that is uh, an example of good exegetical biblical teaching. And so what we've been doing uh, in our light uh, series for a while now is we've been uh, playing uh, every week one installment 
of a series of lectures delivered by uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde out there at uh, Faith Lutheran Church in Capistrano Beach, California. He's uh, used to be my pastor, but I moved to Indiana. So, but uh, Pastor Rohde is an excellent pastor. Uh, I don't know if he's finished his doctorate or if he's still working on it. He's soon to be Dr. Rohde if he isn't already Dr. Rohde. Let's just put it that way. So I, there's a little bit of confusion on my end as to whether or not he was, he's actually finished his uh, Ph.D. work and has been granted the title of doctor, but uh, he's working towards that. So uh, what we're going to do, we're going to dive right into it. Here is uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde in installment number four uh, as he's been working his way verse by verse, passage by passage uh, of uh, the epistle of First John. Here we go. We continue our study of First John this morning. And if you recall, we left off uh, toward the end of chapter 2. We went through the section uh, where, excuse me, the beginning of chapter 2. We went through the section, if you recall, uh, verses 1 through 6 in some detail uh, last week. And just to recap, our reading of this uh, of these verses needs to be broad enough that we understand uh, what John is after here. In verse one, if you recall, just uh, kind of do an overarching view of the epistle. In in chapter one, verses one and following, uh, we see John's theology pointing us to Jesus. It's a Christ-centered theology, which flows naturally into the latter half of that first chapter where he says famously that the blood of Jesus cleanses us from all sin. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So to have a relationship with Jesus, uh, to have part in his church, is to confess one's sins and be forgiven by Christ and to be cleansed by Christ. That is our connection. To use Jesus' teaching, that is how we abide in the vine. We abide in Christ, in His forgiveness, in His love, and in His cleansing blood. Again, let's not think of His cleansing blood abstractly. Let's think not like 21st century Christians. Let's think like 1st century Christians. Where do you receive the blood of Christ tangibly, concretely, actually given to you and for you? Holy Communion. So this business that John writes about the blood of Jesus, His Son, cleanses us from all sins. It cleanses you by coming into contact with you. Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, which is shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. In the Holy Supper, that is where the blood of Jesus touches you and cleanses you from all sins. Okay, so what have we seen? We've seen the most central aspects of the Christian faith laid out for us by John. Then in chapter 2, he wants to talk to us, uh, and again, verses 1 and 2, I think are a wonderful summarization of the entire New Testament message. My little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. 
He is the atoning sacrifice for our sins, not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. Now, you will within Christendom constantly find people uh, erring on one statement or the other. Um, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But how frequently we find so-called orthodox teachers, even teachers within the Lutheran church saying, well, sin is no big deal. Well, God, His grace is so wonderful. His forgiveness is so full. He loves forgiving. You love sinning. It's a match made in heaven. (laughs) Sin more so that grace might abound all the more. Sin boldly. Uh, Luther's quote, misused, by the way. Um, All of this, quite contrary to the New Testament, quite contrary to this simple line, my little children, I am writing these things to you so that you may not sin. So that you may not sin. So that you may avoid temptation. Indeed, that's what we pray for in the Lord's Prayer, isn't it? Lead us not into temptation. Not lead us into temptation, because then we'll say, I'm sorry later and be forgiven, so it's all good. That's not the message. Lead us not into temptation. I write these things so that you may not sin. But of course, going back to what John said earlier, if we say we have no sin... We deceive ourselves. So while the goal is to not sin, the reality is that we will still find ourselves in sin. Thus, the second part of this verse 1 and 2, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate. Hear the Greek word paraclete. Uh, it can mean a legal term, like a lawyer standing beside you, pleading your case, arguing your case. And that case that Christ makes before God on your behalf is not a case like, well, they're weak, it's okay. Well, they're justified in their sin. Well, they've sinned, but not as much as this other person. That's not the case Christ makes. The case that Christ makes is... I am the propitiation for your sins. Father, I am the propitiation. My blood was shed for this one. My atoning blood covers the sins of this one entirely, perfectly, completely. That's where John is saying we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. In fact, His forgiveness that covers over you. I mean, as great of a sinner as you are, as much as you sin, okay? It's not infinite. There's still more sin outside of you, right? There's still others who sin. There's still the collective sins of an entire world. And that's what's so comforting about what John says that He is the propitiation, the atoning sacrifice for our sins and not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. I mean, if His blood can cover the sins of the entire world, of every single human being that has ever lived or ever will live, do you think He can handle your sins too? Absolutely. Absolutely. No matter how great, no matter how deep, no matter how grievous, no matter how troubling, no matter how hurtful it's been to you or to the people around you, His blood 
is a sufficient atoning sacrifice. Covers you. You're clean. You're righteous. And that is the basis, that is the beating heart of the Christian faith. That teaching, that message, that word of Christ is what creates in us a clean heart, renews in us a right spirit, gives us a good conscience in the language of the apostles before God and before our fellow men. Now, with that good conscience in mind, then in chapter 2, John continues by saying, And by this we know, verse 3, that we have come to know Him if we not keep His commandments in the sense of, okay, I've got to get out the Ten Commandments, make sure I'm being obedient enough to, you know, impress God. That's not the point. If we keep, as in treasure, embrace, love, His commandments, His entolos, His instruction, His Word. So we embrace and treasure and keep His Word, and we let His Word have its way with us. And that is the key to all theology. It's the key to every single article of the Christian faith. We take Jesus at His Word, And even if it sounds unreasonable to our ears, even if we can't comprehend it with our minds, even if we don't like it in our hearts, we let His Word have its way with us. Hey, I will be the first to admit that it seems completely irrational to believe that Jesus is 100% God and 100% man that the Scriptures say that He is, as God, knowledgeable of all things, omniscient. And yet as a man grows, the Scriptures say, in wisdom and in stature. How on earth can that be? My mind recoils. And God says, yes, your mind should recoil. Your reason should stutter and stumble and fall down. Because I am greater than your reason. I am greater than your mind. You must first listen to my word and let my word rule your heart and mind. Only after my word and my truth rules your heart and mind, now turn back on your brain, turn back on your reason, and use your brain and reason in the service of my word. So we are to treasure and keep his instructions, okay? And in so doing, in following Christ's word, then we walk in the same way in which he walked. Now, that does not mean walking around uh, as if we're morally superior to everyone, as if we're uh, holier than thou, as if we're pretty much there to point out the weaknesses and all the people around us. That's not the goal. You recall that uh, Jesus was invited to the parties of notorious sinners. And he went. To be invited to the parties of a notorious sinner, do you think he was annoyingly moralistic? No, certainly not. Annoyingly moralistic people are not fun to hang out with. (laughs) Especially if you're a notorious sinner. The last person you want is the moral police officer to, to come to your party and, you know, rain on the whole thing. 
Though Jesus is the righteous one, though he is morally perfect, though he certainly knows the difference between what is righteous and unrighteous, what is sinful and what is good, he picks and chooses his time to speak that word for the good of the individual souls around him. And that's the most important thing that we have to remember, that as we speak the Word of God, law and gospel, as we share our faith, as we share God's Word and truth with those around us, that we do so out of love, out of compassion for our fellow sinner. So you see the guy in the cubicle working next to you, and you think to yourself, well, I'm a Christian, and I guess I have a duty to share the gospel with this person. <sighs> There's the great commission that I have to fulfill, and if I don't fulfill it, Jesus will be angry, or this guy will go to hell, and then Jesus will be angry with me because I never witnessed to him, so I guess I better get over there and witness to him. And then what do you say from this great, loving, wonderful heart that you have for this person? What do you say? You've got nothing to say. So you try to memorize some corny script, right? Do you know where you would go if you died tonight? None of your business. I had a, I had a, when I was a, uh, in undergrad, I was walking to campus and uh, I had this, you know, evangelist, self-proclaimed evangelist woman confront me on the street. I mean, to where I could not continue walking in my face, almost with her finger in my chest. Do you know where you would go tonight if you died? Do you? Well, yes, I would be in heaven. Well, how do you know? Because I made a decision for Jesus. Well, thank God you can boast in yourself, in the decision you've made, in the work you've done, and thank God you're not like these other phony people around you. You recall that? Jesus spoke a parable similar to that. You see, when we go out and share the gospel, that person in your cubicle next to you that you want to share the gospel with, if you're sharing the gospel with them out of some sense of duty, well, I've got to do this thing. Well, Christ has commanded it, so I guess, ugh, fine, let's get on with it. Or if you do it for the sake of a notch in your belt, whoop, one another one for Jesus, awesome. You're welcome, Lord. And I, friends, have another jewel in my crown. Amazing. If these sorts of things are what's motivating you to share the gospel, stow it. Don't even do it. Don't even bother. Because God isn't impressed. God doesn't reward those who serve themselves. And God would rather have you not work at all than work out of slavish obedience to some law. Furthermore, what you are going to do in confronting that person is going to be the most loveless, destroying thing you can do. Because when that woman approached me on the street and said, do you know where you would go if you died tonight? There was one thing I got loud and clear, and that was that this woman could care less about me. Could actually care less about me as a person. She didn't even have a clue that I was a Christian. I could tell that she had no love, no compassion. She was doing it out of obedience or to get another jewel or for some motivation other than genuine, honest compassion. 
If you want to know how to witness better and to your neighbors and to the people around you, don't start by memorizing apologetics or uh, some neat trap to say or some profound question. Okay, start by actually trying to have compassion for them. Look at their lives. Look at them as a fellow sinner. Look at them as being under the same burden as you. Burdens of sins. Burdens of God's curse. Burdens of the devil. Burdens of the world. Find compassion. And then in compassion, go to them and minister to them and care for them and love them. And as you are loving them, speak the gospel. They may reject it. They may reject it all. They may reject your love or care or compassion. So be it. But they will walk away not going, that person's phony, which is how I walk away when most Christians you know, come and try to evangelize me. Phony. Instead, at least they'll walk away saying, you know, that person tried to reach out to me. That person at least genuinely cared about me. Wrong-headed and stupid as they are, they at least loved me. That is the paradigm for our whole, for the whole life of the church, for our lives together and for our outreach into the world. And that's exactly where John goes. Love. Love. Let's pick up with verse 7, chapter 2. Beloved. The first time John uses this word. Beloved. Loved ones. Who is it that's doing the loving? God. We love, John will later say, why? Because He first loved us. You see, love is the identity. That's why Paul, in our reading this morning, uh, says the greatest of these is love. Love. It's even greater than faith and hope. Not because love saves. You are justified by grace through faith. It's faith that saves. It's faith that God credits His righteousness for the sake of Jesus' blood. How is it then that love is greater? Well, you see, the day will come where you have no need for faith because you will see face to face. And the day will, and the day will come when you have no need for hope for your hopes will be fulfilled. But what will go on from now until, eter- until eternity? Love. The greatest of these is love. Beloved, John calls his church, and the Holy Spirit calls you. Beloved, you are loved by God in Christ Jesus. And that is the ground of what he says next. I am writing you no new and totally, no new instruction, but an old instruction that you had from the beginning. The old instruction is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it's a new instruction that I'm writing to you which is true in Him, chiefly in Christ and in you. Because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light, and in him there is no cause for stumbling, scandal on, for uh, ultimately for losing faith is what that word means. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. Now, if these uh, words, hearing these words of John of God uh, lead us to uh, confession and absolution, wonderful. 
undoubtedly the Holy Spirit uses these words in just that way to lead us to confess that we have not let God have uh, God's love have its way with us. Therefore, our love for others has failed. We are to confess that. But again, I want you to consider uh, not only how the Holy Spirit might use these words, but how John intends them in their original context. And here what John is most specifically interested in doing is drawing a line in the sand for his congregation. You know, those who have departed from us, this is why they've departed from us. Because they're loveless. Their lovelessness is shown in the first place that they do not keep the commandments, that they do not treasure God's Word. In that they show their lovelessness. And in departing from us, and there you go in, uh, into verse 19, they went out from us. That's the second part. They went out from us. In departing from us, they show their lovelessness. Okay? Uh, to have a different doctrine, to have a different belief than the rest of the body of Christ is loveless. That's the problem with false doctrine. You know, heterodoxy, it's such an ugly word that you know no one wants to use it anymore. But heterodoxy just comes from the Greek word heteros, which just means other. If you have an other belief than the body of Christ, then you are heterodox. John would look at you and say, you are loveless. Why? Because you love not the Word of God, nor do you love your brothers and sisters, but you think instead that you would prefer to be more sophisticated, to hold this personal private view, to be different, to be other, to be nuanced. John says that is lovelessness and darkness. That's why the New Testament speaks universally not of your personal faith, but of the faith. The faith delivered once and for all to the saints. You see, our goal as Christians is to have our personal faith reflect nothing more and nothing less than the faith handed down to, to us by God, held by Christians in all times and all places. The faith. The goal of Christianity in terms of faith is conformity. To be one. Unity. To be united in love, in His Word, in faith. Okay, so there's a problem. These folks who go out from us, they love not His Word, they love not His doctrine, and they love not the fellowship, and so they depart. Now, does this have implications for us in terms of how we think about church membership? Absolutely. Absolutely. What happens today? Someone gets miffed, like... One Sunday they didn't have, they ran out of caffeinated coffee and we only had decaffeinated. I'm out of here. I'm leaving this church. Okay? Or, uh, you know, I just don't like that Pastor Rody, you know, parts his hair on the left. I'm gone. Okay? Uh, you know, or more serious. I just, I just don't think I'm being fed. Well, okay, you don't like what you're being fed. But what is it? Instead of addressing the issue, what do people do? I'm gone. I'm going to another church. Something terribly loveless has taken over Christian hearts and minds universally. Consumerism. 
I am in a church as long as it pleases me. Wow. Fantastic attitude. Don't let the door hit you on your way out. You're in a church because it pleases you? Well, perhaps we should all, you know, change the way we're facing in divine service and just face you then. You're in a church because it teaches the truth. Because Christ is there. That's why you're in a church. Now, if a church preaches false doctrine, if it acts sinfully and out of keeping with the Word of God, and you try to speak the truth and administer, you know, uh, admonish the pastor, and uh, you try to correct the doctrine, and you are met with resistance, get out of there. That's a good reason to leave a church. Okay? But once you're in a church... It matters a lot why you would choose to leave. Now, sometimes you move away. Okay, great. Another church is closer. Fine. Uh, you know, sometimes life circumstances take you away from a church and into another church. Great. But to simply transfer churches because, you know, I, I, I like the color of their carpet better or uh, they have more people or their pastor is so hilarious in the pulpit. Um, you know, this kind of stuff, John would say that is lovelessness and darkness because you are going out from the body of Christ at which you belong, at which you are a member. So when you are a member of a church, that is when you commune there regularly, when the body of Christ is given to you and you become the body of Christ, you're an organic whole, okay? You know, you, you may say, well, I'm just a finger. Yeah, well, if the finger gets cut off from the body, in the first place, it hurts the body. In the second place, that finger, unless it gets reattached, is going to die. Jack, you're smiling. So, uh, so being, being members in the body, bound together by agreement in doctrine, bound together by love, is the essence of the New Testament church. And this is what John is telling us. Now, the grounding of this is the love of the Father, and that love of the Father flows through us to one another so that we will all have and work toward the same doctrine and practice, so that we will all have and work toward uh, unity in uh, doctrine and life, in faith and love. Okay? All right, we're going to pause right there, pay some bills. If you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith, you can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com, or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian. You can follow me on Twitter, my name there, at pirate Christian. Quick break when we come back, the balance of today's lesson on uh, First John with uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Stay tuned, we'll be right back. Unless your righteousness surpasses that of Rick Warren, you cannot be saved. You're listening to Fighting for the Faith. You're listening to Pirate Christian Radio. We'll be taking your false doctrine now. <laughs> Ah! 
Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body, given for you, this do in remembrance of me. In the same way also he took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. This cup is the New Testament in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. Who are you that you would disrupt our worship of our most holy Lord Jesus Christ? What? I I'm sorry, I didn't quite hear you. Time travel has a weird way of messing with my eardrums. I asked you who you were. And what is this about time travel? Uh, oh, yeah, about that. What year is this? He doesn't seem too bright, does he? Silence. The year is 65 AD, and I ask you once again, who are you? The name is Haas, Peter Haas. I see. Would you kindly leave our presence so that we can continue with the Lord's Supper? Oh, yeah, sure. I'll be out of your hair and... Wait, wait, wait a minute. Did you, did you say Lord's Supper? Told you he wasn't bright. Silence! Yes, I did say Lord's Supper. And this is, in fact, 65 A.D.? Again, yes. Well, that doesn't make any sense. What doesn't make any sense? Well, I guess it would make sense that I would stumble into a house of Pharisees. Excuse me? Well, yeah. It's common knowledge that communion was never meant to be part of a church service. I don't follow. Well, you see, it's stuff like communion and expository Bible teaching that gets in the way of people really experiencing Jesus. Uh, I'm sorry, but are you a Gnostic? No, I'm a pastor. That doesn't answer the question. But I'm a pastor. Well, Pastor Haas, it seems as though you have your facts wrong. During services, like the one before you, we as a congregation worship Jesus Christ and receive his gifts of forgiveness and mercy. What more is there to want? Oh, I get it. You're all a bunch of Judaizers. Uh, we're Gentiles. None of us here are Jewish. Well, um, uh, at least you guys don't use music in church. I don't know what devilry has bewitched your senses. We always sing hymns and psalms during the service. Hey, that's not right. Music isn't supposed to be part of the church until the 1700s. Not as sharp as a soggy pancake, that one is. I'm beginning to agree with you. Are we to believe that you're a pastor? Uh, duh! Well, you're easily one of two things. You're either one, a heretic hell-bent on destroying Christianity with your vile filth, or you're simply a buffoon who is having delusions of grandeur. You're just a hater! Oh, but am I? You claim to be a pastor in the service of Jesus Christ, and yet you seem to know nothing of our early church history or of the means of grace so blatantly set forth by Jesus and his disciples? Uh, well, uh... Where'd you get your seminarian degree from? <laughs> DeVry. <laughs> 
Silence! No, Cassius, I believe that school, as poor as it is in its educational content, would have at least taught him something. How do you ever expect to experience Jesus if you're just a bunch of close-minded Enough! We've had our fill of your empty words. You obviously know nothing about the way, and you're hereby expelled from our midst. But I'm published! Any lump of flesh with half a pulse can vomit meaningless words onto parchment. It's the substance of the words that makes the difference and are what's important. Your lack of knowledge is astounding. Now again, leave. Who do you think you are that you can boss me around? I'm a vision-casting leader in the church of the 21st century. This is the Christian church of Berea. I think I can speak for all witnesses here that you are not worthy of the title of pastor. I wouldn't even hire you for a stable boy. Now get out of the church, you wolf in sheep's clothing. your airline tickets for your summer getaway yet? If not, don't pay more for your airfare, hotel room, or rental car than you need to. Long-time Pirate Christian Radio featured advertiser Cheapo Air is your one-stop shop for all of your travel needs. And we've got a special promo code for you to use at Cheapo Air to save an additional $10 off of Cheapo Air's already low prices. So visit piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap Write down the promo code, then click on the web banner and book your travel today. And remember, a portion of your purchase will go to support Pirate Christian Radio. That website address, again, is piratechristianradio.com forward slash cheap. And thank you for your support. Cowabunga. Mark your calendar now for April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. You see, it's not too soon to be making your plans, saving your pennies, and asking for work off April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the 11th annual Branson Worldview Weekend. This past year, we had people from all over the country and actually from other countries join us in the beautiful rolling hills of Branson, Missouri. So if you're looking to attend the premier Understanding the Times Biblical Worldview Weekend and join us April 25, 26, and 27 of 2014 for the Branson Worldview Weekend. It's for all ages. Children 11 and under are free. We also have a group rate and a family rate. The Worldview Weekends have been around since 1993. So we're one of the oldest Biblical Worldview conferences in America. So mark your calendar now for Branson, Missouri, April 25, 26, and 27, 2014. Warning, listening to Fighting for the Faith could cause you to become supremely dissatisfied with your church, especially if your pastor doesn't engage in this type of in-depth biblical exegetical teaching. 
just a reminder, Fighting for the Faith is listener-supported radio. That means we depend upon you and your generous gifts and financial contributions in order to continue to bring Fighting for the Faith to you into the world. And you can partner with us by visiting our website, fightingforthefaith.com. When you get there, you'll see our two friendly yellow buttons. One says donate, the other says join our crew. When you join our crew, you are signing up to automatically contribute $6.95 every month to the ongoing work and mission of Fighting for the Faith and Pirate Christian Radio. It's a great way to support us. Of course, if you'd like to specify the amount that you would like to contribute to help us stay on the air, you can do that by clicking on the Donate button, or you can make your gift payable to Fighting for the Faith and then send that to Post Office Box 508 Fishers, Indiana, zip code 46038. And let me thank you, thank you, thank you for your support. We truly cannot do what we're doing uh, without it. Now, here's the, uh, the balance of today's uh, wonderful lecture. Uh, working through the epistle of 1 John, uh, here again is uh, Pastor Jeremy Rohde. Any questions on that section? Yes, Dave. I know I'm not the only one in the room that appreciates your comments on uh, evangelism. Um, it's always been a, still is, uh, a kind of thorn in my side how to handle that personally. Um, because I grew up in the Billy Graham crusade, uh, four spiritual laws, campus crusade type of uh, background, even in the Lutheran church, uh, which is hard to kind of kick because it's still, I think in my mind, I still feel guilty when I think about evangelism. It's, it's the first feeling I get, unfortunately, uh, because of the background I've been in. Uh, as much as I've appreciated good Lutheran theology through the years. So I'm still struggling with it. <laughs> yeah. I probably always will. I just wondered, um, I, I appreciate what you're saying about the compassion. And, and uh, just recently at, at work, it's helped me an awful lot in dealing with people to, to like them instead of hate them <laughs> from the get-go. And that may sound very <laughs> stupid and simple, but it really is the way it is. Yeah. Makes my life a lot easier, too. Yeah. Um, I just wondered, um, how do you change that mindset? You know, I mean, how do you, if you could talk a little bit more about what you were saying. Sure. There, how to change your mindset uh, from not giving a rip about that person to giving a rip. Small, maybe, rip, but still a rip. Um, the source and center of this is the gospel itself. And the source and center of this is a recognition of how loveless we ourselves are, uh, unlovable we ourselves are, and how God has loved us in Christ Jesus. Um, what an extraordinary act that is, that God has loved us. And I'm not just talking about while we were still sinners, okay? I'm talking about right now, while we still are sinners, that God continues to love us, continues to sustain us. I would say meditate first and foremost on the law and gospel, on God's interactions with you and your own life, let that open your heart and change your heart and then turn and look at that person who you have no compassion on and say, oh my goodness, I am not looking at them the way that God looks at me. And then to pray. Because if we want to be more loving, if we want more fruits, of the Spirit, we should all try harder or do spiritual exercises. Wrong, wrong. We should ask God because God is love, and if we want more love, He must give it. 
because the fruits, it's the fruits, not of us, but of the Spirit. And if we want more fruits of the Spirit, we must ask the Spirit that He may give us His fruits. So, uh, after meditating on the law and the gospel and what God has done for you, and realizing uh, how loveless you have been uh, to this person, pray that God would fill you with love and compassion for them. And then start very concretely to look at them differently. Look at them the way that you would want God to look at you, the way that you would want Christ to look at you. Sometimes the worst parts of people are the parts uh, where they are suffering the most. And it's counterintuitive, you know, because you say, well, that person's just a jerk. Well, the very place that they're being a jerk is perhaps uh, the root of that is their very deepest insecurity and the very thing that you need to address, you know. And I think, it, I think it's those types of concrete things. And to realize that God has called us to this task, not in the way of law. You know, the greatest crime of the 18th, 19th, 20th centuries and the first part of this is that we've turned the so-called Great Commission, which, by the way, I think that phrase is a horrible phrase. It's not in the Scriptures. Uh, it's popularized in American evangelicalism, nowhere else. Um, uh, the Great Commission is not law, but a gospel invitation. Who fulfills the Great Commission? Not us. Good Lord. God. God fulfills the Great Commission. All authority on heaven, in heaven and on earth has been given to me. And guess what? I am inviting you to participate in this wonderful saving work I'm doing. It's an invitation. I'm sharing it with you. I mean, if God wanted to snap His fingers and do His evangelistic work, God could. Instead, He chooses to include us. Why? So that we may all feel guilty all the time. No! Quite the opposite! So that we might have joy! Because of the joy that is in Him, He wants us to have this joy that our joy may be full. And you can't be very joyful if every time you hear the word evangelism, you go, oh gosh, that's probably my biggest failure. Okay, that's perceiving it as law. And we're taught to perceive it as law all the time. You know, even the highest levels of our churches perceive it as law and teach it as law. I loathe pastoral conferences, chiefly for this reason. They're going to be about, dun, 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 evangelism, part 24. Oh, what more can we learn this time? And then you have a guy in, in a Hawaiian shirt or, or his suit uh, convinced that he is now fulfilling the Great Commission by guilting a room full of pastors of how they have not fulfilled the Great Commission. Super work guy. Uh, and let me give you some new techniques by which you can fulfill it. <sighs> oh, those are real new. They were invented in the evangelical church 30 years ago, and they've long since abandoned them. The LCMS is like, spectacular. Okay. We have got to flush all of this and purge all of this and get back to Jesus' words. And get back to, not the Great Commission, but what Jesus says, as you are going, make disciples. How? Baptizing them into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and teaching them to treasure 
all of my instructions. Baptism and teaching. Loving people. Bringing them into the truth. Bringing them into the light. That's what it's about. And it's not about guilt. It's not about law. It's, it's an invitation to participate in the joy of what Christ is doing. Because He's going to do it. It's going to be done. Do you want to have part in His joy? Then it's an invitation to look at the people in your life and look at them anew. Look at them the way that God looks at you and start to have compassion. And then start to turn to them in their need and see how it is that you can help. And the time will come for you to share Christ. The time will come. And the Spirit will give you the words. In fact, Christ Himself is going to speak them through you. And that's a promise. Because Jesus says, or Paul says, it is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And Jesus says, whoever hears you, hears me. You see, it's an invitation to abide in Christ and to let His love flow through us and to let His words be spoken out of our lips. And through these words, He will work when and where He pleases. And honestly, it's not our job to convert anyone, okay? It's our job to baptize and teach, to preach the gospel, and it's that Word of Christ that creates faith. It's God who creates faith. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of Christ. What's your job? Speak the Word of Christ. Not artificially, not in a phony way. Exactly as you would do it. With exactly your words. In exactly the place that God puts you. And don't be judged. And don't let Satan come in and guilt you about, oh, you didn't do it right. Or, oh gosh, I just wish I had the skill of some great theologian or some great apologist. Nonsense. God has put you there. God has put you there. So rejoice in that and rejoice that in the speaking of His Word, He promises to work whenever and uh, wherever He pleases. Okay, does that kind of help? Yeah. Let's go a little further. Um, this idea of, oh, there's a hand. Okay, yeah. Um, beautifully said. I hate to break the flow of all that, but I have a question about the structure of some of the verses here. Sure. 12 to 14 uh, is is written differently. It almost looks poetic. Maybe you dealt with this already and I missed it. No, I'm you coming know. right up on that section. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. All right. I just want to know why it looks different. It looks almost poetic. That's the, that's the perfect lead-in. Um, Folks have, uh, you know, English translators have taken that, put it in a poetic form because they recognize that grammatically there's some parallelism. There's something going on. Now, to be fair, scholars argue about what exactly is going on. Okay, I'm going to share with you what the foremost Lutheran scholar thinks, okay? That we look at it like this. What John is leading us into is that the church is the concept of family, the family of God. And this is going to ever be, uh, ever increasingly um, become more and more a thematic element of First John. He's already called us little children, and that's not because he means to belittle us, but because we are God's little children. We are uh, we are to perceive of ourselves as family, and so so at, at uh, verse twelve, um, I am writing to you, little children. Okay, now what he means here is I am writing to you, all believers. Okay, all who are part of the church, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. Now, I want to deal with that 
But what I want to do first is deal with the structure. Go back, uh, go to the latter half of verse 13 and look at the parallelism. I write to you children because you know the Father. Okay, you see how he repeats himself. Now go back up to uh, the first part of 13. I am writing to you fathers. All right, now go to verse 14. I write to you fathers. Okay, um, go to the middle of 13. I am writing to you young men. And then look at the middle of 14. I write to you young men. Okay, so what he is doing is he is going more or less children, fathers, young men, children, fathers, young men. Okay, that's uh, essentially the structure of this section. Now, by children, he means all Christians, all members of the congregation, church in the widest sense. By fathers, uh, he means teachers and leaders, spiritual fathers of the church. By young men, he means uh, the less mature. But at the same time, the up-and-coming leaders, the next generation of leaders, he specifies these two out uh, because he realizes that this is the present generation and the next generation. Now, this is very concrete and wonderful pastoral advice, okay? Because pastors come and go. Pastors come and go. Um, you know, Pastor Hoyle and I driving in a car to a call, and God forbid something happens, and faith is looking for new pastors. Now, all the groundwork that Pastor Hodel has laid and that I've built upon and he's continued to build upon for all these years could be undone in a blink of an eye. Okay? What matters, what is the essence of a congregation? And here I'm going to be just a little sexist because John is. Are the male leadership in the church, the fathers, okay? the ones who can deal with confrontation, the ones who can deal with infighting in a, in a calm, decisive, impersonal ma uh, manner, and the ones who can lead the congregation uh, into calling faithful pastors. And then if the pastor comes and he's rough around the edges, they can lead that pastor into being a more faithful pastor. If that pastor comes in and he's a false teacher, they can lead the pastor to the curb. Okay. Um, so John, John uh, it takes the whole body of Christ and then points out the present leaders and the upcoming leaders. Okay, um, that's that's what he's after here. But now look at look at these wonderful things that he he says here. The, these gospel sayings that he has apply to all Christians equally. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for His name's sake. Do you remember what Peter says? Repent and be baptized, every one of you, for the forgiveness of sins. Okay? Repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of sins. And then do you remember what Jesus says? Be baptized into what? The name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Now look at this verse again. I am writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven. Why? For His name's sake. Your sins are forgiven because you have been baptized into the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And that is why, by the way, you are little children. 
because you have been born from above. Born again. Okay? As Jesus says, born again of water and the Spirit. And therefore you are little children. God's children. Therefore you can pray, our Father. Make sense? Okay. So this is a fantastic baptismal verse. Um, for His name's sake. Again, don't think like a 21st century Christian. Think like a 1st century Christian. Think like someone who's biblically literate. His name is not just His name. His name is that thing that you have been baptized into for the forgiveness of your sins, Peter says in Acts. Okay, I am writing to you fathers because you know Him who is from the beginning. This hymn in specific is Christ. If you go back to uh, chapter 1, verse 1, we're introduced uh, to Christ in just that way. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us, all of this a reference to Jesus. I'm writing to you, uh, fathers, because you know Christ who is from the beginning. I am writing to you, young men, the less mature, because you have overcome the evil one. Okay? What evil one are we talking about? Satan. John speaks about overcoming the evil one uh, very specifically and I think very beautifully in Revelation 12. Can we take a field trip over there? Because it's the same author who writes this. And he, here he talks, uh, he writes most beautifully about overcoming the evil one. And I want you to see too that this, that this belongs to you, that God has given you this victory. Okay, uh, we're going to go to verse 12. And uh, let's just let's just pick up at verse seven, and we'll go uh, we'll go from there. And I'll just read kind of quickly. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ has come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. And who accuses them day and night before God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. Okay, uh, real quick, let's just, let's just talk about this. Most people think that the, that the uh, devil and his angels were kicked out of heaven way back in Genesis. At the beginning of the world, when they fell, then God kicked them out of heaven. Wrong. Not correct. They still had access to heaven. Look at what it says. It says uh, in verse 10 that uh, he is the accuser of our brothers. He has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. You see, up until this point, Satan and his angels had access into the throne room of heaven and they could accuse the brethren. 
there are biblical examples of this. Uh, Job, most famously, right? Um, there's another example of uh, Joshua when the second temple is being built, um, and Joshua is a man who is going to be selected as a high priest, and Satan begins to accuse him. His garments are unclean. He's a filthy sinner. He's unfit to be a high priest. Christ speaks on his behalf, needless to say, and cleanses him. But I want you to see that Satan accused the brothers before God. But what John is telling us here is something has changed. The accuser has been cast down. He has been thrown out of heaven. Okay? And why? Because Jesus has ascended into heaven. And it's, picture it like a divine courtroom. Okay? And God is there at the throne, and before Christ completes his atonement, Satan is there, the prosecuting attorney. And he is, he is making his case against the brothers, accusing them day and night. Look at this person. According to your law, this is a sin. The wages of sin is death. This person belongs to, uh, this person is going to die and have eternal death and go to hell. He is accusing. He's the prosecuting attorney in the courtroom of heaven. He is able to say that, and God allows him to say that only until Christ is crucified, resurrected, and ascends into heaven, and his blood cleanses every sinner. Now, Satan, when he accuses you of sin before God in heaven and says, what about, what about this person? What about this sin? What about this that judges your law? Christ says, but my blood atones for all of that. But that sin doesn't belong to Pastor Rody anymore. It belongs to me. Upon me was laid the sins of the world, and I took them to the cross. That's my sin you're talking about, not Pastor Rody's sin. And so the devil's case is thrown out because he is shown to be a false accuser. He accuses the saints. He accuses you. But Christ says, no, no, you're accusing the wrong person. It's not her sins anymore. It's not his sins anymore. I took those sins upon myself. You want to accuse someone? Accuse me. So God calls Michael the bailiff of the divine courtroom, and Michael kicks Satan and his whole legal team out of heaven. Okay? And they can no longer accuse the brothers. Now look at this. Here's the key. Verse 11. And they, that is we, have conquered him, have overcome him. How? By being really good Christians. By being obedient to the Ten Commandments always. By fulfilling the Great Commission. They have conquered Him by the blood of the Lamb. That's it. That is the only way to conquer the accuser. That is the only way to conquer Satan. Now you say, I don't need the blood of the Lamb. I don't need Christ. Then guess what? You get the accuser, and you get the full weight of God's law. But you see, if you have the blood of Christ that covers you, there is no accusation that can be made against you. As Paul says very clearly, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And no condemnation means no condemnation. Okay? They've overcome him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. That is the confession of the faith. 
By the blood of the Lamb and faith in that blood, they have overcome the evil one. So here John says, uh, back, I'm back at 1 John now, um, looking at this, I am writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. That's true for each and every one of us. All right, with our waning minutes, let's go on with the next parallel set of statements. I write to you, children. Now, again, here he's talking about uh, all the church, okay? Because you know the Father. Remember, Philip says to Jesus, show us the Father and it is enough. And Jesus says, oh, here he is. I've been hiding him the whole time. No, Jesus says, whoever has seen me has seen the Father. You see, if you want to know the Father, you put your eyes on Christ. When your eyes are on Christ, then you know the Father. Okay, I, I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know Him who is from the beginning. We've seen that exact phrase before. It's Christ. I write to you, young men, because you are strong, and the word of truth abides in you, and you have overcome the evil one. Now that's that parallel, isn't it, that we just read about. By the word of their testimony, by the blood of the Lamb, and by the word of their testimony, they overcame Satan. And here John repeats the theme, by the word of truth, because it abides in you, you have overcome the evil one. You overcome the liar and the father of lies by the word of God, which is the truth. Okay, so what is John doing? He's strengthening his community. He's strengthening the church. He's building us up collectively as a whole and then looking specifically at the leaders, both present and to come, and he's encouraging them and he's building them up. And, and how is he doing that? He's having a pep rally. No, he's preaching the gospel to them. That's how he's building them up. He's saying, remember who you are. Remember what God has done for you. Don't lose hope. Don't think of yourselves as weak. So everything in our country is going to hell in a handbasket. What do you care? Christ is victorious. So are you. You're triumphing, whether you realize it or not. So it would be better if you realized it. Okay? So John builds up his church. Now, uh, I want to show you just this next section. He says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, God's love is a specific love. We talked about that before just with John 3.16. That God so loved the world, as in God loved the world in this way, that He gave His only begotten Son. God does not love the world as in He embraces its evil and its sin and just thinks, oh, this is wonderful. I just so am so infatuated with this. I've got to save it. No. Because look at this. Do not love the world or the things of the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Um, love the sinner but hate the sin. Uh, as much as I can understand what that statement's trying to do, it's dead wrong. It's dead wrong. Um, God hates the sinner. <laughs> God hates the sin and the sinner because the sin and the sinner are one. God does not love the world or the ways of the world. Um, neither should we. But what God does love is He loves in this way. He loves us in this way that He gave His Son, His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. So too, we love the world in this way. We love it in Christ Jesus. 
We love it and we reach out to the world in the truth of God's Word, in love and compassion for sinners. But where people reject the gospel, reject truth, choose lies, choose sin, choose to remain in the darkness, we're not to wallow with them in that. Jesus tells his disciples at one time, if you go into a city and you preach the gospel and it's rejected, do what? Stay there and hang out and maybe you'll win them for me. No. Wipe the dust off your feet and get out of there. It'll be better, better for the cities of homosexual rapists on the day of judgment than for them. will be better for Sodom and Gomorrah than for those who reject the gospel. That's serious and it's sobering. It's scandalous to our ears too. But it's important for us to realize that love must be distinct. That love, that God's love has a purpose and that purpose is always in Christ Jesus. It's never just this, oh, I love everything. Because if you love everything, you love nothing. I mean, if I love my wife and I'm just so loving that I love other women in exactly the same way, that's not loving. That's loveless. Right? We're called to love in a specific way, and as Christians, it's to love with the love of God's law and God's gospel, with God's word and God's truth, to be ambassadors of His specific love, a love that is in Christ Jesus to the world. I'm out of time, and uh, strategically, I can't take any of your questions. That's, uh, so, but if you need to catch me on my way over to church, you can do that. The Lord be with you. So what would you think? Love to get your feedback if you'd like to email me regarding anything you've heard on this edition or any previous editions of Fighting for the Faith. You can do so. My email address is talkback at fightingforthefaith.com or you can subscribe on Facebook, facebook.com forward slash pirate Christian, or you can follow me on Twitter. My name there, at pirate Christian. Until tomorrow, may God richly bless you in the grace and mercy won by Jesus Christ and his vicarious death on the cross for all of your sins. Amen.